when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly podcast on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Russian spy attack in Salisbury and its implications for Britain's foreign policy, plus Philip Hammond's speech on financial services after Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined by David Bond, the FT's Defence and Security Editor, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman, City Editor Jonathan Ford and Laura Hughes, our political correspondent. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through the usual channels to receive it to your device every Saturday morning. The country has been shocked this week by the unfolding poisoning of a Russian spy in the cathedral town of Salisbury. Sergei Skripal and his daughter were apparently poisoned with a nerve gas on Sunday. Both are in a critical condition in hospital as of Friday. And there are echoes of the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, another former Russian spy on British soil. Fingers are already pointing towards Moscow and the possible involvement of the Russian state. If this is proven, what happens next and what does that mean? for Britain's relationship with Russia. David Bond, can you just begin by telling us, as of the time of recording, one of the hard facts we know about this case is a lot of rumour and conjecture going around. Absolutely. I mean, there has been a lot of speculation, as, as we know, about what exactly has happened. But really, the actual facts are quite few and far between. So what we do know is that a nerve agent was definitely used in an attack which has been described by Amber Rudd as brazen and reckless and outrageous. And we know obviously that Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia are both still in a very serious critical condition in Salisbury Hospital. We also know that a police officer, Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey, is also in a very serious condition, although some of the mood music around that has become quite encouraging in the last 24 hours. We know that he went to the Skripal's house. So rather than other people, and in total 21 people have been treated following either attending the scene or, or the Skripal's themselves, we know that he went to the house, whereas others who seem to have fallen ill have all been released and, and not so apparently badly affected by it. And the focus now from the investigation team, which is being led by the counter-terrorism force out of uh, Scotland Yard, seems to have widened in the last day or so to three sites. So to the house, to a pub that uh, Mr. Screepow and his daughter went to, and this restaurant where they ate lunch, Zizi. But we don't know the exact nature of the nerve agent. Police have been, and the Home Secretary has been very careful not to say either that they know what it is, and they're certainly not making it public uh, if they do know. And while they have made lots of noises about Russia, they have stopped short of saying definitively 
that it is the Russians. And Gideon Rachman, you can see why there's been a lot of fingers pointed in this direction because um, the, the case of Alexander Litvinenko remains very strong within the public memory. And I think last year it was Theresa May who came out and said after the result of the report and investigation into that said to Russia, well, you know what you're doing and you won't succeed. And People are already sort of wondering, well, if this is Russian involvement, as the signs do seem to be, and there's been various things from the Russian embassy and Russian state TV that all point towards some involvement, it's going to be a very tricky one for the government to deal with. Yeah, extremely tricky. I mean, yeah, frankly, it strains credulity that it's anybody other than the Russians. You point to the Litvinenko case. There's now a lot of attention over the a lot of other mysterious deaths of Russians in the UK. 14 or so. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, not all of them may have been murders, but there are certainly questions to ask. And indeed, the Labour Party in Parliament is saying there should now be a public inquiry into all of those cases. And the difficulty for Britain are manifold, but... One of them is this sense that this is the most brazen example of something that has been going on really since Litvinenko and that Britain has underreacted in the past and given Russia kind of a green light to murder people on British soil. This cannot continue, but what do you actually do? I guess this is the question now, David Bond, that as the investigation continues into exactly what happened, but the idea of using a nerve agent in Salisbury, of all places, a sort of quite sleepy cathedral town. (laughs) It wouldn't be any good if it was in Brixton either. No, no, um, of course not. But um, I think the, the scenery of that, I think, has really struck people into what an extraordinary event this has been. Well, it's been really shocking, hasn't it, seeing scientists wearing these biohazard brightly colored biohazard suits on the streets of Salisbury taking away evidence and just as I was coming in here actually stories developing again that the Ministry of Defense so the armed forces have been called in in quite large numbers actually to remove vehicles from the center of Salisbury we don't know exactly what that's about but again feels like another escalation and will be very very frightening for people frankly to to see how this is developing and and that the police and the military don't really seem to have a full handle on where this is going at the moment. Clearly, as Gideon says, you know, all signs are that this has come from some kind of Russian attack. But at the moment, I don't think they truly know or that they have the evidence to go out and be that firm about it. Mm. But let's say for the moment that there's a strong enough circumstantial evidence to compel the British to do something. There is still that question of what what you do. The standard sort of Cold War response is expel some diplomats, but there's not much evidence that the Russians would be that phased by that they would expel some British diplomats. And in a way, that would simply be a signal of business as usual. So the British have to think, well, what more can they do? There are substantial Russian business interests in London. You might begin to target those, although you then have the question of, well, are you targeting people who are innocent of any involvement in this? But it is the case that in the aftermath of the shooting down of the Dutch plane over Ukraine, the Ukrainian intervention, American sanctions have been tougher than British sanctions. The list of Russians banned from the United States is larger than the list of Russians banned from London. The last senior Russian figure I met in the UK at the Russian embassy 
with somebody who is banned from going to the United States but could come to the UK. So it's possible that that kind of ban could become more capacious. And that is the kind of thing that would hit the people around Putin because a lot of them have financial interests in The most probably bizarre suggestion we heard was a brief one from our Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson this week who said that maybe we could think about withdrawing our team from the World Cup, which is... I don't is... think that's bizarre at all. I, I, I think that... Well, it was, it was bizarre because it was withdrawn very quickly afterwards. It would only be dignitaries that would be withdrawn. Yeah, I mean, I think the team will go, but I think that they'll have to think quite hard about the dangers of that because let's say the embassy is really cut to the bare bones. You've got a lot of British supporters wandering around Russia without any consular support in an atmosphere of heightened tension with Russia, and Russia has a serious football hooliganism problem. I'm not sure it's a great idea. This might be slightly glib, but I don't think England really need that much help in withdrawing themselves from the World Cup. <laughs> We're going to win it, David. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> and I think there's also going to be questions as well, David, about the role of the security services in this, that as well as the 14 Russians who have died in British soil, there will be questions about, you know, were they aware of this and they could have done to stop this? All those usual questions. Is, is there something for them to answer there? I think so. And it's interesting that one of the things which hasn't yet been explored, probably because the story is moving so fast, is whether MI6 or MI5 have in some way dropped the ball here. You know, this guy provided high policy intelligence to MI6 for a number of years. He was clearly very important because otherwise he wouldn't have come here as as part of that spy exchange back in 2010. Which is a very significant exchange. Yeah, I mean, it was the biggest since the Cold War. I mean, in some sense, we're into uncharted territory here because it's not like these things happen all the time and it is probably the only one since the Cold War so mm. in that sense but it was a big deal and the fact is is that the UK asked the Americans to add Sergei Skripal's name to a list of four agents that the others were agents for the CIA so the fact is he was significant now what he was doing after he came to live in Salisbury is a huge mystery we just don't know uh, but we, what he did. Yeah, we also do know that uh, members of his family had been dropping dead rather rapidly, which might suggest that there was a case for upping the security around him. Well, quite. And I've spoken to various people about this, and some say it is hugely embarrassing. The first job of any intelligence service is to keep your agents safe. So that's one view. The other view is, well, actually, you know, he had been pardoned. He'd been swapped, you know, under the old Cold War rules. That would have meant, OK, they're not exposed in any way. To danger from the Russians. And he was living openly as Sergei Skripal. You know, he bought his house for cash, £260,000, in, in his own name. So he obviously didn't feel like he was under threat. And I guess this is the question getting about whether the goalposts have changed here. You know, as David was saying, that uh, Mr. Skripal came here through a spy exchange, and that normally gives you some kind of immunity. But Russia has obviously become increasingly confident in its actions. As you mentioned, you had the Ukraine annexation, you had the plane being shot down. Each one, it keeps escalating. It's because they obviously think they can get away with it. Yeah, and although there's been a bit of hand-wringing in Parliament about that's because they think the British are uniquely weak and so on, and, and there may be something to that. There are also mysterious deaths of Russians in the United States. There was a guy who was apparently cooperating with the FBI who died uh, in the DuPont Circle Hotel in pretty suspicious circumstances. So, yeah, the Russians do feel they can act with impunity, it, it seems, perhaps because the normal rules of symmetry, you do this to us, we'll do that to you. You know, the British and the Americans can't go around murdering people on Russian soil. It's not the way they act. So uh, the Russians have found a kind of 
an impunity which we don't yet know how to respond to. Is there any sense that there can be any diplomatic means to take this thing forward or not? Or is it going to really be a sort of an aggressive move after this, do you think? Well, I mean, diplomatic means would be things like expelling diplomats, and I'm sure that'll happen. I think one question for Brexit Britain, actually, is how much European support do we get? Because normally, the first thing we would have done is take this to the EU and say, let's try and get some support here. But I don't think that would necessarily work as well now as it would have done in the past. One of the things I've seen, David, is this suggestion that there could be some sort of NATO thing with Germany and France or what have you, making some kind of statement. You know, is that the best way that Britain can go about it? Well, I mean, this might be more of a question for Gideon, but... the you know, the question in my mind is, and there's already sort of talk of maybe a move next week to blame Russia and then to follow up with some kind of diplomatic uh, steps. But really in Trump's White House, is there going to be any appetite for the Americans to get involved in this fight with the Brits? You know, Yeah, yeah I think there might be. Um, because the, oddly enough, the Russia coordinator in the Trump White House is a Brit. And not, not that she would do it for that reason, but she's a woman called Fiona Hill, who's very tough on Russia. I mean, the Trump White House is completely schizophrenic on this, because we all know about the Mueller investigation, about Trump's rather peculiar attitude to the, uh, to the Russians. But the people below him are standard toughies on Russia. So who would prevail in this? I'm not sure. Back to Brexit, and Philip Hamm delivered yet another speech this week. This time it was focused on financial services. The Chancellor rejected there could not be a trade deal for the UK service industry, which makes up 80% of the economy, and rejected the off-the-shelf models for a deal for the City of London. But like Theresa May, was Mr Hammond being a bit too optimistic, or was he pushing at an open door to get something bespoke between the UK and the EU after exit? Lord Hughes, let's just begin with a bit of background on where this began here. Philip Hammond is the, the EO of the Cabinet on Brexit, the one who's pushing for close alignment on rules and regulations and all that sort of thing and this particularly is on financial services which is a very important part not least for the FT's reader and listenership but for the UK economy as well so he stood up and gave this speech to try and set out a vision what did you make of it? Well, we were, we were expecting something like that from Philip Hammond, Eeyore. Eeyore was sounding quite positive, though. He said the whole purpose of his speech was to hit back at the sceptics. And he wasn't talking about the Eurosceptics only there. He was talking about EU officials who aren't overly optimistic about the direction of travel at the moment. He made an interesting point, and he was trying to sort of rally the troops over in the EU. He made a, a real case for us having some financial services agreement as part of a free trade agreement the eu have rejected that but the point he was trying to make is well look actually the eu were trying to do a deal of a ttip with america they're not in the eu you looked ahead to do something a little bit different you moved the barriers a little bit there so if you can do it for america why can't you do it for us so he was trying to be optimistic there and he was trying to make the case and we all know that he is against brexit and would like us to be as closely aligned as possible with the EU when we leave with his interests were with London and the city it didn't play out totally well um you know it was what we were expecting I think from Philip Hammond 
I guess Jonathan Ford that financial services have been somewhat overlooked in Brexit. We had a lot of talk about goods and manufacturing and the Irish border, um, not least because bankers generally don't get a lot of praise from the British public, so politicians obviously play towards that. But Mr Hammond obviously sees the importance and tried to set out this vision. You've opined a lot about um, the future of the city after Brexit in your columns. What did you make of what he had to say? Well, I think it was what you might really expect, which is if you're going into a negotiation, and this is clearly going to be a negotiation involving all sorts of things, as we now see from fish to, as you say, the Irish border to uh, finance uh, to goods and services, um, it's not surprising that he went for what you might think is, is pretty much his maximum ask. The government has ruled out single market membership after we leave, but within the financial services arena, it's clear that there is very little support for the idea of a Norwegian-style deal, which would see us essentially in the city signed up to a kind of perpetual stream of regulations from ESMA and from the ECB without any real ability to determine their content. So the question for Mr Hammond and for the government has always been, how do you get the maximum amount of access for the minimum amount of obligation and therefore the greatest freedom you can to diverge where it is in your interest from EU rules while remaining as closely tied in business terms to them. So the first thing we heard, Laura, from Mr Hammond was this thing of mutual recognition, which we've heard from Brexit on all sorts of things, not just financial services. And I've heard this from at least a decade, I think, from Brexit supporters who always like to say, well, we can have our rules, they can have their rules, and they'll somehow be aligned and we'll have a body that's not the ECJ that keeps them in sync and it'll all be fine. That seemed to be his first port of call, but... As you said, the EU has already said that's not something they're particularly willing to countenance. No, it's it's not going to happen. And it's interesting because then you start talking about divergence and then you go and actually ask the Eurosceptics, OK, where exactly do you want to diverge? And they often don't really have an answer. But I was talking to lots of Eurosceptics this week and Remainers because it seems as though there's been a bit of a truce. There haven't been mass rebellions, people speaking out against the prime minister. And someone said to me that actually the ERJ, so this group of Eurosceptics, are a bit more relaxed. And when it comes to things like this, they are willing to manoeuvre a bit. And if there is some panel that is overseeing these things, and there were perhaps a few ECJ members on there, that actually the Jacob Rees-Mogg's wouldn't really kick up a fuss. I think Philip Hammonds, obviously, he has, you're right, he's gone in for the maximum he could possibly hope for in the hope that they'll find some sort of middle ground. I thought the Luxembourg Prime Minister signed it up beautifully this week when he said that, you know, the UK had been in but with opt-outs, but now we want to be out with opt-ins and that we can't possibly be cherry-picking in this way and that that phrase keeps coming up, cherry-picking, but in a sense that is what we're doing if we want this sort of mutual recognition but not on some things and yes on others. Just on that point about divergence, I mean, clearly the financial services world is not the same as as toasters where you are basically saying we want to make a toaster with our own standards and therefore we'll exclude European toasters and so on and so forth. That's a fairly simple category. The example I would give if you, you ask about the ability to set your own rules, and that's really what we're talking about here, not some sort of a product reclassification, would have come after the financial crisis when in 2011... The clearing operations in London, so the sort of bit of the city that is like the kind of plumbing, so-called, accepts huge amounts, effectively is the, the mechanism by which a lot of European banks were borrowing 
from other institutions. Effectively, they were sending their their government bonds and uh, turning them into cash because they needed cash. And the clearinghouse through which this was done in London changed the collateral requirements for Irish and Italian banks overnight in 2011. And that was incredibly unwelcome in the ECB because it basically posed a threat, they felt, to those banks. And the City of London's view was completely opposite. It wanted to protect the British taxpayer against the possible disaster of a clearinghouse falling over. So you can see a situation where you can have a direct conflict and therefore the ability to set your own rules and determine how you want to operate is an important freedom and actually has real value, I think. So the mechanism for this relationship that's been talked about is equivalence. This is essentially where the EU has its rules, the UK has its rules, and it's basically a rubber stamp to say, OK, these are the same. You can go on and, and trade in a similar way you do now. Now, Philip Hammond in his speech said that the regime of equivalence that is being discussed is not good enough because the city of London is too big and equivalence was never designed for such a big market. And he's really talking about equivalence plus in some form there. Jonathan, you know, how much sense do you think that that is achievable and is that the likely way it's going to go? Or is there actually not going to be any deal for the city of London? First of all, there is an established mechanism under EU law which allows third countries to effectively apply for and if the EU wants to do a deal with them, and there's really no reason to imagine that they wouldn't, there are certain categories of financial business, so investment banking, where you can sign up and become equivalent. The thing that the city doesn't like about that, because the city is very big and huge investments have been made in London by international investors, they say, well, yeah, but what happens if, you know, they change their mind or they pass a rule and and London doesn't want to apply it? Are we not going to find that we're suddenly, you know, thrust out of access to this market? So what I think Philip Hammond is trying to um, negotiate or move towards is a situation where some of that risk is removed by trying to create a more predictable backdrop, which means creating, if you like, a special status for the city in some ways, which will, of course, be, you know, the issue is what are the terms and what's the price of that extra access? And my view is that while there is a value to this and there is a price worth paying, actually the price may not be enormous. And it may be that there's a point at which you say, actually, it's better for the city to be outside this and completely free to operate on its own terms than tied into some awkward treaty mechanism with the Europeans, which basically doesn't really work for us. I think this is the question, or it's the rule taker thing, and this is the reason why Conservative MPs does not accept the Norway thing, because for the whole of the UK economy, you would become a rule taker. And if you're the EU, well, wouldn't you do things to favour your internal market versus what would be a third country? And I guess on financial services, it's particularly acute, as Jonathan was saying. But it does seem to be there is latitude there about where they will take some rules on some areas, but not necessarily on other. And that's where the cherry picking comes in that Mrs May talked about in her speech last week. But we heard from Brussels, they had their draft guidelines that came up for their negotiating principles for free trade deal. And there were not many cherries to be found in there or even the scent of cherries. No, financial services weren't even mentioned in the draft documents, in their, their guidelines, which I think is a really significant point because that's what Philip Hammond was talking about in the EU haven't even considered that point or mentioned it isn't great news for the government over here and there is that question yes maybe we have to pay to have that extra access 
how well will that go down with the Brexiteers? You know, they're quite strong on this. They don't want to be paying in. They want, you know, to fully break ties. But maybe they will compromise. Philip Hammond keeps making this case for the city to be exempt for this. And he was really making the point that it's in the mutual interests of both the EU and London to find some kind of agreement there. But the draft documents were pretty harsh. They warned about the economic impact of Brexit. They weren't very positive about it. It's not surprising. Again, and of course, they're going to play hardball as we saw them do with Ireland and the question of the border there. So Philip Hammond will keep making the point, but those guidelines weren't what he would wanted this week. And I guess something the question I think listeners will be wondering is that how much of what you see in public is both sides just standing off against each other. You know, they've both got very firm positions. Theresa May's got her red lines. They don't look to be shifting, remaining outside the single market and the customs union. And on the EU side, they've said, well, we're not going to dilute the four freedoms. You can have a trade deal like a third country. And that's about it. But behind the scenes, do you get any sense that there is a bit more manoeuvre on those two things? Well, I think Theresa May has has said she thinks that both sides will have to compromise some of their positions. I think it's clear that the, the UK, as Philip Hammond's speech suggests, wants to go beyond the bare minimum of an FTA with the European Union. The European Union, if you look at the financial services industry, it's not disadvantageous to the European Union. Certainly a number of member states have very symbiotic relationships with the UK in finance. I mean, your Luxembourgers, for example, you know, have a very comfortable relationship in many ways with the city of London and wouldn't necessarily want to see everything in finance go to Paris or to Frankfurt. So ultimately, I think there is conceivably, and I, and I think there are lots and lots of really hard arguments ahead, that it's, it's hard to imagine that both sides will not, to some extent, find a way to come together on some issues where there is, to be honest, advantage in working together. And the real question, I suppose, is the extent to which, you know, ultimately this sort of theological view that you need to preserve the sanctity of the single market at all costs, really how far that drives you. I would definitely recommend listeners checking out Gideon Rackman's column this week, who really raised this question of the EU as the legal versus the political case for this. And finally, Jonathan, one of the things Philip Hammond said in his speech that it was not Frankfurt or Paris or Dublin that would benefit if the city of London doesn't get a good deal on Brexit. It would be New York, Hong Kong and Singapore. Is that right, do you think? Is the city of London essentially going to be fine after Brexit? Well, I think if there's a very uh, hard and difficult breakup and lots of restrictions are imposed on what the UK can do and what European banks can do, In, in for example, I think that that will be damaging for Europe in general. And I think the biggest beneficiary will probably be New York in the sense that large American banks, which are very important, would pull more of those activities potentially back to their home countries. And, you know, I think that the Donald Trump tax plan, for example, is something which potentially will encourage movement in that direction in any event. So I think there is a risk. You'd expect Hammond to say, don't think that it's going to be a great party for Paris or Frankfurt if we can't get a deal. But I think there is some substance to those concerns within the City of London. I think people do look at it in those terms. There's not a sort of sense that a financial capital in Europe of anything on the scale of London is going to be created in the near term. And the global sort of position will just be reshuffled with other centres benefiting a bit from London's eclipse. 
And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you to David, Gideon, Law, and Jonathan for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.